Okay, guys. A couple of real quick things before we jump in. In fact, if you'd like, why don't you open up to the Gospel of John, chapter 10. That's where we're at. So uh, if you've been following my social media or church's social media, you know that uh, I announced that we're going to do a special message today in the next two weeks, I should say, today and next week. Uh, but it all kind of dovetails into John chapter 10, which I'll get to in a moment. If you guys don't have a Bible, raise your hand. Uh, so much as I would love to get your Bible. Two real quick things. Number one is if you have youth or you know youth that are between junior high and high school, um, don't miss this Tuesday night. We have our second of what we're calling Anchor Talks. It's a time to get together, a little bit different than our normal routine. Um, it's a time to really take certain uh, cultural topics and issues and address those, uh, things that kids are dealing with, facing. Last time that we talked about that, we addressed the subject of, of gender and identity and the way of Jesus. This particular Inca talk, we're going to be looking at the subject of anxiety and stress and worry and all those things that oftentimes uh, kids can melt underneath. And our hope is to provide some good counsel and wisdom from Scripture to help equip people so that they can navigate this type of stuff uh, well. So again, that's this Tuesday night. Do not miss it. Uh, there will be some like better than normal food that will be available too. So as an incentive. So uh, if you know of other kids in the neighborhood that are that fit that bill, or if you know any kids, even in your kids' lives, that they're going through some gnarly, stressful circumstances, like this is an opportunity. Invite them to that, so they can hear and learn and grow and really hopefully meet Jesus. That's our, our, our big aim. And then lastly, uh, for you men, uh, this Wednesday is our men's group, so don't miss that as well. We do that every other Wednesday night. Our hope is to continue to shape men to become men of faith, virtue, and courage, so check that out. Uh, how many of you men have actually been to men's group? Raise your hand really, really high. Really high. All right, good. You guys are awesome. I'm not going to ask for those of you that have not been, but if you have not been, talk to one of those guys that raised their hand. They would love to kind of fill you in on how awesome uh, Calvary Men is. So again, this Wednesday night at 7.30. So, all right, John chapter 10, we're going to jump in right now. We have so much to cover today um, that we will not be able to cover it all today. We're saving some, the rest, some of it for next week. Um, it, it may be three weeks. I don't know. I'm going to really try as hard as I can to keep it in two weeks. Um, and if I, if I go too fast, my apologies up front. Um, again, we have a lot of information to cover. My hope would be that you can go back and check it out on our podcast or whatever podcast app that you use to go ahead and listen to it. And you can even slow it down. You can pause it. You can stop it. You can check it out, write notes, whatever you want to do. All right. The other thing I want to say as well is, can you show the slide real quick with the little QR code? We will come back to this. Nope, sorry, the next QR code. Nope, not that one. Sorry, we've got too many QR codes. This one, this one. Um, I created a Slido, if you're unfamiliar with that. It's just you can, you can uh, take a scan of that, and then you can ask any question you want that's, that's relative to or relevant to the particular uh, content and topic that we're going to be looking at. So go ahead and scan that if you want right now. It will reappear, so in case you miss it, it will come back. All right, I'm going to jump back into John chapter 10. Uh, we've been in a series going through this great gospel. We come to a really important passage right now that kind of flows into what we're going to be talking about the rest of today and the next week for sure, if not maybe two weeks. Um, John chapter 10, verse 14 through 21. By the way, if you did not listen to last week's teaching, uh, Nick Billich, one of our very long good friends, did a fantastic teaching on this, so I would highly recommend checking that message out and listening to it. It says this, Jesus speaking, I am the good shepherd. I know my own, and my own know me. Just as the Father knows me, and I know the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep, I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also so that they will then also listen to my voice. So there will be one flock with one shepherd. For this reason, the Father 
loves me because I lay down my life that I might take it back up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down on my own accord. I have the authority to lay my life down, and I have the authority to take it back up again. This charge I received from my father. Verse 19, just in case you're trying to figure out what was the emotional state of those that heard Jesus share these oddly cryptic statements. Well, here's what it says. There was again a division among the Jews because of these words. Many of them said, he has a demon. He's insane. Why listen to him? Others said, no, these are the words of one who is oppressed by a demon. Can a demon open the eyes of the blind? And this is the word of the Lord. Let me pray. Jesus, we just invite your presence to open our hearts, open our eyes. And God, if there are any in this room right now that are uncertain as to whether or not you are their shepherd. In other words, they are sheep that are wandering. Sheep that are lost. Sheep that are vulnerable. Sheep that are being terrorized. Jesus, open hearts. Do a work that only you can do. Bring sheep home. Become their shepherd. Do the rescuing and the saving that you alone can do. And we commit this morning in your hands. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. I want to go through real quick, um, just reiteration of what Jesus said. Again, if you're familiar with this passage, this actually goes all the way back into John chapter 9, where Jesus does this miracle. He heals this guy who has blind eyes. This creates a ruckus and a stir. People are scandalized by Jesus helping this guy. Uh, he does so on the Sabbath, which kind of exacerbates the reason why they're so angry with Jesus. Nonetheless, what we see in this long dialogue or dissertation between Jesus as well as his religious leaders, he makes some really powerful and profound statements. I am the gate. I am the sheep, or I'm the shepherd of the sheep. And then he makes a handful of these other like really profound statements. Uh, and they are very, very packed with meaning and information and importance. Um, what I want to do real quick is kind of highlight a handful of things that Jesus makes uh, with regard to the assumption of what the good shepherd is. In other words, what the good shepherd does. That the good shepherd, number one, loves his sheep. This is very obvious. Jesus loves his sheep. Secondly, Jesus lays down his life for his sheep. Again, we get this in verse 11, verse 15. It says he lays his life down. The word life that's actually used in the Greek is, is interesting. There's two major Greek words that are oftentimes used for the English word life. You get zoe. Uh, and you get bios, so we're, we're familiar with those particular words. This particular word that gets translated um, from the Greek into life is the word suke, um, psychological, your, your mental capacity. What Jesus seems to be uh, indicating here, I, I lay my psychological well-being, my, the sum total who I am down. How, how extensive does Jesus love his sheep? How extensive is he in terms of his devotion to helping those that are wandering and those that are lost? so extensive he gives the sum total of all that he is um by the way that's what love is when you love somebody it's them giving the sum total of themselves to you not withholding back not being duplicitous if you're in a relationship where there's secrets you know how painful that is or when you find out those secrets you know how destructive that is to those relationships the way that you counteract that is you give yourself entirely to that but that's scary because that requires trust that requires this knowledge that if I give myself some total of all that I am, dark stuff as well as light stuff, good stuff as well as wicked and evil bad stuff, stuff that I'm proud of, stuff that I'm absolutely ashamed of, if you give all of that away to that other person, 
there, you run the risk of rejection, right? Not with Jesus. He already knows it. He already knows everything. The good stuff, bad stuff, dark stuff, light stuff. Stuff you're proud of, stuff you are deeply, deeply ashamed. But he knows it all, and he gives his life to you. That's what love is. So, I mean, honestly, it's just a good moment to even pause and, like, ask yourself, do you know this love? Do you, do you have an experiential knowledge in relationship with this love? Do you want to know that experientially? You, you can. This is the beauty of it. It's like, there's nothing to be sold. There's nothing to be, like, coerced into. It's like, it's there. It's available. All you have to do is, is receive it. Turn to Jesus, just like we did the communion. Receive it as a gift that Jesus says, I'm offering. I love you. I'm here for you. Lastly, we see that not only does he love the sheep, he lays his life down for his sheep, but he also unites the sheep. And I want to um, use this as sort of a springboard into talking a little bit about the subject of Israel, which we will get to in just a moment. Let's, before we jump into that topic, let's just go slowly and think about this. Um, take a look at verse 16 again. He says, I have other sheep not of this fold. I must gather them also, and there will be one flock and one shepherd. So, um, I think we might have a slide that might indicate that, maybe not, um, or the, at least the passage. I just wanted you to listen to this again. I have other sheep. So Jesus is indicating there are other sheep that are beyond the sheep that he's, he's referring to. So we'll try to understand who are these, quote-unquote, other sheep. Secondly, Jesus says, I must gather them. In other words, it's indicating they're lost, they're scattered, they're separated, and I want to gather them together. And then lastly, uh, he says, there will be one flock, one shepherd. Not thousand flocks, not a thousand shepherds, one flock. One shepherd. So the question then becomes, uh, that's pertinent to us, who are these other sheep that he's referring to? And so it's, there's been a traditional interpretation that this is probably a reference to Gentiles. Uh, in other words, non-Jewish people that are outside of the fold or not part of Israel. And that's a very good possible reality. I mean, we do know for sure that Gentiles are included into this beautiful fold that Jesus is crafting. Um, I've read other commentators that I think... I find actually a little bit more compelling that this is not probably a reference in this context here to Gentiles, but probably a reference to something else that we're going to read in Ezekiel chapter 37. We'll go there in just a moment. But a reference to the scattered, divided, broken house of Israel. Now, if you're familiar a little bit with the history of Israel, you know that Israel has oftentimes been a divided nation from the north to the south kind of like America had been at one point, divided, that you had uh, Jerusalem, you had Judea, or, and, or Israel and Judea. It was a house divided. Um, if you're familiar with much of the Old Testament, like uh, the Kings or Samuel or some of those other, other uh, passages and references, you realize that that played into a very central challenge to the nation as a whole. Uh, you had one side of the nation that was oftentimes more devoted to Yahweh God and his promises than another side of the nation that oftentimes drifted into idolatry and um, all forms of indifference to God. And as a result of that, injustice. And by the way, injustice always, listen carefully, injustice always, always, always follows um, idolatry. There's a cycle. First it begins with idolatry. In other words, the elevating of something beyond God. And then at some point, there is a degeneration in one's thought processes or emotions or moral um, clarity, and it degenerates into various forms of injustice. So in other words, if you're trying to make sense of the cultural landscape in our world today, and you see injustices all around you, be a really good sleuth and figure out where are the idolatries at. Trace it back upstream. You'll find that there are idolatries. There are things in which people are elevating, placing Love of something over love of God, and then that 
is the cause. So in other words, you want to get rid of injustice? Get rid of idolatry. Rid the world of injustice by way of creating people that are filled with white-hot love, fervor, desire, devotion to Jesus. Now, that doesn't mean that you're not going to drip, but it will mean that your moral compass will be reshaped, your life will be transformed, you will begin to move in a direction which God intends. So, with that being said, I'm going to read a couple passages uh, that seem to be indicative of what Jesus seems to be hearkening to. So, again, uh, Jesus makes mention of himself being the shepherd. He doesn't say this out of left field. So, some of us might be reading the life of Jesus, and we're like, Jesus says I'm the good shepherd. What is he talking about there? Why does he reference this idea of shepherd? Again, last week, I referenced the message. It was really good. Uh, so, I'm not going to go too much into detail on that. But, however, Jesus does use language as saying, I am the good shepherd. So, to know a little bit about the story of the people of Israel can be really helpful for us right now. So if you guys want, you can either turn or write or just take a look at the screen to Ezekiel chapter 34. I'm going to read a handful of verses from verse 2 to verse 6. And I'm going to skip on down to verse, uh, to verse 7 to 12. And then I'm going to jump forward to Ezekiel 37. So those are three uh, spots that we'll take a look at. Um, and again, if you have any questions, go ahead and scan that. You're more than welcome to uh, ask any questions. That are, you can also upvote them. So if rather than having to type something out, you can just click a button. It'll upvote it. And then next week, my hope would be to get to some of these questions that you guys have and try to answer them as much as I can. And again, if we can't get to it all next week, we'll maybe, you know, craft three weeks out of this. So anyways, let's jump in. Ezekiel chapter 34, verses 2 through 6. Uh, God says to the prophet Ezekiel, who is, think of uh, the prophets as being like these, uh, these poet, um, rock star people that are out to communicate hard truths in crafty ways, speaking truth to power. That's, that's what Ezekiel was. He speaks truth to power. It's not popular, by the way. In fact, uh, you look at the life of Jeremiah, he goes through tremendous uh, affliction and beating and suffering and jail time, uh, cancellation as a result of the word that God gave him to speak forth. This seems to be the oftentimes routine of prophets that speak truth to power. So Ezekiel chapter 34, verses 2 through 6 says this, prophesy, God says, against the shepherds of Israel. So who are the shepherds, first and foremost? Shepherds, oftentimes throughout the, church, uh, throughout the people of Israel's history, can either be priests, the religious elite, or the political elite, in this case, like a king, or someone that is a you know, landlord, someone that has a lot of money, people that had positions of power, if you want to think of it in modern t terminology. Those that had positions of power were the ones that were shepherding or guiding or directing the people of Israel. How were they supposed to do that? Well, they were supposed to do so, they're, they're, the manner of, or the criteria of goodness that they were supposed to be following was bringing the people of Israel back to the heart and back to the worship of God. Remember the whole idolatry thing we talked about? Their hope was to bring people out of idolatry by challenging their idolatrous ways and to bring them into worship with Yahweh God. That was, a, that was, a hard, that was a hard and a large task that they had cut out for them. So God tells Ezekiel to prophesy. He says, because the shepherds of Israel have been feeding, uh, they've been feeding yourselves. Should not shepherds feed the sheep? You eat the fat. You clothe yourselves with wool. You slaughter the fat sheep. But you do not feed the sheep because there is no shepherd. They became food for all the wild beasts. My sheep were scattered. So you catch a little bit of the emotion that God has, Yahweh God has. These are my sheep. I entrusted my sheep into the hands of shepherds that were supposed to take care of them and guide them and nurture them and cultivate goodness around them, but instead took advantage of them. Have you ever seen that happening in our world today? 
people that they're tasked with the job of taking care of someone or stewarding large sums of money, and instead of doing that rightly or well, they're living fat off of that. They're buying, like, their third and fourth, like, private jet, and just, it's exorbitant and ridiculous, and you get the idea. At some point, if you feel any sense of rage about that, you're modeling a trait that Yahweh God has. So, so good job. Good job. <laughs> All right, here we go. Ezekiel 34, verses 7 through 10. He goes on to say, because my sheep have become prey. So God kind of gives some, like, here's the consequences. Like, there's consequences. Our choices. Our actions. Our inactions. Things that we should be doing. Things that we shouldn't be doing. Have actions. In this case, because the sheep are being taken advantage of. He says, because my sheep have become prey and food for all wild beasts. And because my shepherds have not searched for my sheep. Again, you get this idea. Their, their job was to search for the sheep, was to track them down and to bring healing and to bring order out of chaos, but they weren't. And instead, they fed themselves. Verse 9 says, therefore, I am against these shepherds, and I, God says, listen carefully, and I will rescue the sheep from their mouths. So you get a little bit of a clue what's going on here. Who will step in and be the shepherd? Sketch this. Read it again and I will rescue the sheep from their mouths. So, so Yahweh God is saying something very profound. He says, I got shepherds, earthly shepherds, they're supposed to be doing a job, but they're not doing a job. In fact, they're actually taking advantage of the very sheep that I love, and because they're failing, and because from their failure it has brought and unleashed a lot of chaos in the lives of people that I care about and I love, I will step in and be the shepherd of these sheep that are scattered. Uh, one last little section right here. Um, verse 11, for thus says the Lord God, I, I myself will search for the sheep and I will seek them out as a shepherd. So when Jesus stands up and says, oh, hey, by the way, I'm the good shepherd. Do you feel the profundity of that? Can you understand why people are really angry with Jesus in this moment? Do you understand the claim of what Jesus is making? He's literally saying, I'm Yahweh God. And it's, it's a double claim. It's a claim of saying, I'm going to do the work that you shepherds should have done but aren't and haven't done. But it's also a claim of condemnation. Jesus is saying, you guys failed, and you're going to have to pay the price. Because Yahweh God has stepped in and will do something about the lost state of those whom he loves. How did he do that? What did he do? Well, we just celebrated that. He dies on their behalf for them. He get, the shepherd gives his life for the sheep. All right, skip on ahead to Ezekiel 37. This is going to be really helpful, I think. Um, so if you're familiar with this particular whole passage, so again, if you're familiar with prophetic, prophetic literature in general, you know that prophetic literature is really important part of the ancient canon of Scripture. And in other words, it helps provide a, help, uh, a detailed understanding as to what God is doing. So in this particular context, they would not have read this in very diversified or distinct manner. They would have read this as one big um, poetic statement that was a big flow. Uh, oftentimes when we read our Bibles, we read like one chapter a day, which is great. Good, good job. I'm glad that you're reading one chapter a day. That's awesome. But the way the ancients would have read this would have been in very large swaths or sections because they're all interconnected. And this is also part of the whole point of being connected with that. So uh, Ezekiel 30, 37 begins to talk a little bit about, it opens up talking about this valley of dry bones, where God uh, describes or shows to Ezekiel, and this prophet sees this 
vision, this image of a massive valley, and these bones are there, and they begin to rise and stand up, and uh, they come together. And, and again, you've, I'm sure we're all familiar with some storyline with regard to this valley of dry bones. Well, this is all part of that whole thing. And most scholars, in fact, I would think almost all scholars would agree that this is a reference to Israel looking like they're dead, but coming back to life. National Israel, looking like they're dead, they're no more, that maybe you might even be lulled into believing that because of their infidelity or unfaithfulness to God, God had been finished with them for good. Think of a marriage contract, covenant, let's say. Um, If the marriage covenant breaks, are there licenses and opportunities to divorce? Of course. God, God says that's part of the process. So the question is, even though Israel was not always faithful to God, were there occasions where God could have legally, like, divorced them? Yes. But the fullness of the story is that he chooses not to. And he re-ups his commitment to them, his covenant to them, by forming or nullifying the old covenant and reiterating a new covenant. Again, you say, what is the new covenant? Well, we just celebrated the blood and the body of Jesus being given to us. God has been proven to be faithful. So let's take a look at verse 15 to 24. I'll read this and I'll kind of move on. Ezekiel 37 verses 15 to 24 says this. The word of the Lord came to me, son of man, take a stick and write on it. For Judah, here's what he's supposed to write. For Judah, for the people of Israel associated with him. Then take another stick and write upon it. For, Ju- for Joseph, the stick of Ephraim and all the house of Israel associated with him. And join them together. So in other words, stick one, stick A, stick B. Write little names on there. And then take those two sticks and put them together. This, this is the image. So again, this is what prophets did. It was kind of like street drama, right? Sometimes they were, they were called by God to like act something out and do this like odd form of street drama. So here Ezekiel is being asked by God to basically perform the street drama, writing names on it, taking two sticks, putting them together. Why? He's going to tell you. Uh, verse uh, wherever. He says, and join them together into one stick that they may become one in your hand. And then he goes on to say, behold, I will take the people of Israel." And from among the nations, which they have gone, and I will gather them from all around, and I will bring them into their own land, and I will make them one nation in one land on the mountains of Israel. And one king will be king over all of them, and they shall be no longer two nations, no longer divided in two kingdoms. My servant David shall be king over them, and they shall have one shepherd. If you're, if you're catching any, like, John 10 vibes, Good job, because that's exactly what I think Jesus had in mind when he's saying or crafting everything he's about to say here in John 10. I'm the good shepherd. I'm gathering. I have other sheep that are not of this particular fold, but that are out there, that are wandering, that are less susceptible or vulnerable. But because I'm the good shepherd, I'm going to bring them in. I must bring them in, and I will be one shepherd over one flock. This is all that Jesus seems to be indicating in this particular context. All right, let's move on from this because I want to really make a clear statement, and we'll move on into some other stuff. Israel, here's a statement I want to kind of use as sort of a pivot. Israel has had a long history of conflict and unrest, and Jesus sets himself as this shepherd to bring it all to a conclusion. Let me repeat that. Israel has had this long or lengthy history of conflict and arrest, but Jesus sets himself as, quote-unquote, the shepherd to bring it into it all. I think this is exactly what's happening in John chapter 10. So with that being said, I want to talk a little bit about the subject or the history of Israel, because I think Israel is important in this context 
not only in John chapter 10, but it's important for us in the world in which we live in. If you haven't noticed, at the center of many of the major conflicts on planet Earth is this tiny little strip of land occupied by, I don't know, 4 million, 6 million, I'm not sure exactly how many Jewish residents actually live in that particular area. I don't have all that stats. I mean, I had a lot of data and some things I probably missed out or left out. So if you know the answer to that, please let me know. Um, but this small area along the Mediterranean has been literally this, this main cup of trembling in the entirety of the world. Why? Why isn't Madagascar at the center of, like, Earth's geopolitical madness? Right? What, why isn't Saskatchewan, like, at the center of, like, Earth's madness? Why isn't Antarctic, you know? Why, why this tiny little place called Israel? I, I think there's a lot more going on in our world than we oftentimes care to pause and reflect and think about. And I, and I want to do the best that I can in the time that we have to just pause, reflect, and think about this. So with that being said, I want to just talk a little bit about some of the principles of Israel and their land. I'll give you, I think, about six of them, so something like that. We'll go through each one of these. I'm going to go through these very quickly. So again, just as if you have questions that are arising in your mind as I'm going through these, please feel free to ask me a question or upvote something that's already in there or go back and listen to the message um, at some point this week. So number one, we see, and again, I'll, let me also give another little caveat. I wish I had way more time to kind of like put scripture and verse next to these. I didn't. Um, all of this kind of came about within the past like three days. I'm like, I just, sometimes God directs, redirects my thoughts and says, I want you to teach on this. I'm like, ah, it's going to take a long time to prep for that. And I don't have a whole lot of time to prep for that. And this past few days have been kind of crazy for other circumstances. But the point of the matter is, if I had way more time, I would have scripture references all next to this. So at this point, I'm just asking you, trust me that there are scripture passages that uh, correlate with each one of these things. And if I had more time, I would have put them in it. Number one. God chose Israel from all the peoples of the earth to be his own treasured possession. Most of us are probably familiar with the story, the story of Abraham, uh, the early stages of the book of Genesis. God calls Abraham and says, I want you to be uh, the father of, of many nations. So God calls uh, this nation to step up, and he describes them as his own treasured possession. So that's number one. God could have chosen the Amalekites, the Egyptians, other nations that are far more numerous and far more powerful, but there's occasions throughout the prophetic literature that God says, I didn't choose you because you're a great number. I didn't choose you because you, you know, passed from Bronze Age into Metal Age, or I, I, don't, I don't know too much about the metal type stuff, so I just probably sounding like a more intelligent than I really am, but I'm not. Um, but because you guys have amazing uh, weapons of mass destruction. I didn't choose you because of your ability to think or your scientific uh, thinking abilities or capabilities. I didn't choose you for any of this. In fact, I chose you because you were the least and most unfavored. And I just did that as, a, as an act of sheer grace. Which, just pause real quick and just think about, th this is the God that we have. Um, if you are somebody that has been swept up in the past three to five years of social injustices and you have a heart that says, man, I really... I have a heart for the marginalized, the hurting, the pain, uh, the, the problematic, those that have been shoved off in the margin. Then, then I, I want to tell you right now, that heart is an echo of the heart of God. That is God. And I, I would say rather than uh, sinking your teeth into these little bite-sized morsels that culture and social justice and other variant forms of the cultural, popular cultural landscape are trying to uh, uh, force feed you, my invitation to you, Deep dive into scripture. Deep dive in the way of Jesus. And, and give the, some entirety of your life over to Jesus, and, and you will be shaped by the purest, most beautiful form of justice 
that, that God, God has created on planet Earth. And it will be sourced in the very source itself, right? God himself. Because this, this is who God is. God chose Israel just because he loves. Secondly, we see that the land was an inheritance that God promised to Abraham and his descendants forever. This is also another important thing, that God promised this land, this territory. Um, why this territory? Again, there's a lot of speculation as to why um, I don't have a whole lot of time to kind of go into this background. But what we do know, based upon ancient um, cultural roadmaps, that Israel literally was kind of at the very center of three major continents, like Europe, Asia, and Africa. And, and all these ancient trade routes, like, literally went through Israel. It was like, the center, it was like God says, I'm going to put you on the best piece of property this earth has to offer right now. And Israel, by the way, is awesome. If you've ever been to the land, it is beautiful. It's on the Mediterranean Sea. They actually have some areas where there's decent surf. It's an amazing, amazing area. And the water's always pretty warm, and there's occasions where it's cold, but it's absolutely beautiful. Um, and again, I wish I had way more time to go into this, but I don't. But all I want to just say on this is that the land was inheritance. So let me, uh, let me uh, emphasize the word inheritance. Um, who owns the land? Yeah, God. Who lays claim to the land? Well, there's very disputed today. It's in our world today, right? Some would dispute it belongs to Israel. Others would say, no, it doesn't belong to Israel. Israel came in and hijacked it and took it away from people that had it prior. But God, from the very beginning, would say, no, this is my land. This whole earth belongs to me. And its fullness is mine. And I choose to give it who, to whom I will give it. In fact, Jesus even reiterates this. He says at the, in the Sermon on the Mount, he says, the meek will inherit the earth. See, we're wired to believe, no, the powerful will inherit the earth. The influencers will inherit the earth. The elite will inherit the earth. The rich people will inherit the earth. The politicians will inherit the earth. Jesus, no. The meek will inherit the earth. So, as we move on from that, we see number three. The promises are made to Abraham, including land, will be uh, an experienced reality by an obedient, believing, and faithful Israel. So this, this gets a little bit challenging here because on the one hand, it's like, well, wait, wait a minute. I thought the land was a promise from God never to be redacted to the people of Israel. Um, yes, but at the same time, you also know throughout the prophetic literature, there are these occasions where the prophets will say, look, your claim of experiencing the land is linked to your fidelity to Yahweh God. In other words, if you become idolatrous, you begin to worship the ways of Egypt or worship the ways of Babylon or worship the ways of the Assyrian or the other entities or gods or local tribal entities or deities, you will enter into idolatry, which will lead you into injustice, which will lead you into taking advantage and abusing other people. And God says, I'm going to eject you out of the land. And you're going to be in exile. And, and again, you just have to read the Bible and know that there's multiple occasions where they've been in exile. What is exile? Exile means they're not at home anymore. They're, they're away from the land. And as a result of that, they, they suffered. They suffered existential crisis. They suffered an identity crisis. They suffered in a number of different ways. But what we see oftentimes throughout the prophetic literature, God brings them back to the land by way of his own fidelity, his own faithfulness, because God's a covenant faithful keeping God. But their reality of, of experiencing was dependent upon their obedience and believing in God's faithful covenant. Okay, number four, Jesus came as the Jews' Messiah and was rejected. So in other words, this covenant-keeping God says, I'm going to send my son into the world. He will be the king. And the consensus was rejection. Jesus was rejected. We're familiar with that story. Fifthly, Scripture speaks of God's continued faithfulness towards Israel and the land. 
Uh, you can pick this up in Ezekiel 37, which we had just read. Uh, you can take a look at Romans chapter 9, verses 12, a very lengthy passage of Scripture where Paul is wrestling with, you know, did God fail the people of Israel? Has God broken his covenant with the people of Israel? This is really important because if, if God is a covenant-breaking God, we got a problem here because <laughs> that, that means uh, on a very practical level that morning when you wake up and you're like, man, I don't feel very saved. I don't feel very loved. Put you on an extremely um, insecure platform. But it's because God is actually a covenant-keeping God. You can actually rest your feet and put your head on your pillow at night and rest assured that even though you don't feel very saved or feel very loved or feel very lovable, you nonetheless are because of his faithfulness. So this is, this is a crucial element here. All right, so scripture does speak of God's continued faithfulness towards Israel, so on and so forth. Uh, lastly, sixth, and I want to end with some actionable items, and I'll be done. And I think this kind of, this will set us up for next week when we will take a look at some bigger, broader, um, I'll just give you a couple items that we will take a look at. We will take a look at kind of the summary of the recent attacks. We'll take a look at the history of the modern state of Israel, um, Hamas, Palestinians, misinformation that's going around, um, hopefully answer some of your questions. You're already kind of getting a little bit of shape in your mind. You say, I don't know how we're going to do this all next week. You're right. So you see the dilemma that I'm in, right? Thank you. Thank you for having compassion for me. All right. So let's, let's, let, me, let me summarize this last little thought, verse six, or number six. The modern state of Israel, and I, and I crafted this as best as I could, and I'm not very good at, at wording, um, but this is, why I, this is the best I could create. But listen to it. The modern state of Israel is in a confusing tension between holding a biblical claim of divine right to the land while simultaneously maintaining a secular public life apart from covenant, covenantal faithfulness to Yahweh. Let me try to break this down. So on the one hand, you have those within the Israeli, modern Israeli government that are saying, hey, we have this land because God gave us the land. But on the other hand, national Israel is not a nation that's stated aim is to devote themselves to covenantal faithfulness to Yahweh. We got we got a little bit of a conflict going on here. It's hard. How do you reconcile the two? I don't know. I don't have the answers to all these things. But my point is, I'm just trying to point out ease on the eye chart and say, here's the challenge that right now, I would say something like Israel is in the midst of. Because if you were to talk to majority, or I don't know, majority, but many, many Israelis, they will tell you we are secular. Do you worship Yahweh God? No. Do you offer sacrifices at the temple? No. Once in a year, we'll do kind deeds for people. But and, and for, for some, the hope would be to build or anchor their life on this as a means of some form of, of righteousness. And, and I, I think most would acknowledge the fact that that's, that's shaky ground. It, it's, it's vastly different. What we're looking at in the modern state of Israel is vastly different than what we can look back at, you know, Israel under, say, King David's rule at the height of its uh, monarchy. It's vastly different. But... At the same time, trying to hold on to a biblical claim of certain things. And I would say this is, it's not too different from modern state America. Where on the one hand, we're like, hey, we love freedom of speech. We love uh, democracy. We love liberty. We love being able to have the freedoms that we have. We love being able to be expressive. And at the same time, we're also saying we don't want to acknowledge anything to do with God or the or the positions or the platforms that God gave us or principles that God gave us in order to have these things. In other words, if you trace all of this stuff back up, even through Hume and others that had helped frame and craft the very document that our nation was founded on, at some point you follow all this stuff back upstream and you realize it, it all boils down to a, a Christian value system 
that sees human individuals as valuable. And if, if you don't believe me, just take a look at all history. Individuals did not matter. You were a part of a system that somehow was probably organized underneath the headship of some form of monarch or king or tyrant. All history has always been this way for the most part. Where did it change? I can tell you where it changed. The Christian movement that was unleashed on planet Earth changed the culture as we know it today. But here we are, you know, 21st century America, very far removed and divorced from any form of Christocentric understanding, and yet we're trying to still squeeze out from our cultural system some form of values that values human life and dignity and value and whatnot, while at the same time saying we don't want to have anything to do with, with Jesus. At some point, you have a very similar uh, matrix or makeup for confusion at minimum. All right, I want to finish with some final thoughts in terms of actionable items, and I'm done. Here we go. Um, number one, I want to just give some practical thoughts for you guys to think about. Number one is devote yourself to Jesus. If you're here this morning, you're not a Christian, I, I can't think of honestly more than any other time for you to just get right and get serious with Jesus. Like seriously, get serious with the one who made you and who loves you. And if you have questions in your heart or you're dealing with, is, is he a trustworthy God? Please talk to us afterward. We would love to help provide some information and help for you. But now's the time, I, I really believe, to really think about. Our world is in a state, I mean, more so than ever. I've been alive for a long time. More than ever, my entire life is, I keep hearing, we're on the brink of World War III. We're on the brink of war. And, I'm, I'm, and again, I'm not, I'm not a guy that's going to, like, somehow craft some sort of headline to, like, create some form of sensationalization. But at the same time, I want to be a realist and realize, like, man, we are heading into some really potentially dark times ahead. And the stakes are really, really high. I can't think of any other source of hope than Jesus. Secondly, pray for the peace of both Israelis and Palestinians. Israelis and Palestinians. Again, I'm going to go into this more next week, but Palestine is, is, a, is a complicated thing that needs to be carefully thought about, and I'm not even going to bother trying to go into that right now, other than to simply say, as Christians, our call is to pray for all. Thirdly, mourn with those who mourn. Romans 12, verse 15 gives some input on this. We are, we are called to embody a life of compassion. Um, I have watched over the years when some form of crisis erupts in the Middle East, um, and, and, it's, and I would say it's, it's built upon an errant viewpoint of Israel's role in the end times that I've watched Christians actually applaud the death of innocent Palestinians as a means of saying, yeah, God's getting his stuff on. End time's coming. Jesus is coming. Guys, I sure hope and pray to God that's none of us in this community. That is not the heart of Jesus. It's wicked. I'm going to call it what it is. It's wicked. It shows no compassion. We are called to be people that not only pray, but also weep with those who weep. There are people on both sides Palestinians as well as Israelis that have suffered tremendous loss in the field of that. Third, uh, fourthly, um, form moral clarity. Now is the time than ever to form moral clarity. There's a lot of things that in our world today of multinationals and multi-religious type context in which we live in, sometimes we have to, you know, provide certain aspects or 
angles of a particular complex situation, but there are also in this moment, there's a tendency to somehow like punt when it comes to providing moral clarity. I, I think something like this clearly shows us there is moral clarity to be found, and there, what was done on that day of the massacre of Israelis was, was purely wicked and evil, and if you, you can't call it that, then I, I think there's a moral ambiguity there that needs some form of clarity. If you cannot look at the unfortunate death of Palestinian children in any context, I mean, whether it be Hamas framing these things or other third parties or any other form of thing that's going on that causes deep, deep pain, there are some things that we can look at and say, no, this is evil, this is wrong, this is sourced in the evil one who has no aim other than to steal, kill, and destroy. Where death reigns, you can be certain it's not because of Jesus. Uh, fifthly, uh, resist propaganda, mob rule, and the violent spirit of the age. Resist propaganda. Um, my deep concern, and I've, as I've been reading, watching the headlines over the past few days, I've been feeling weird, like inner anxiety hives that came about in May of 2020. Um, and they're like <laughs> resurfacing. I'm just joking. It's not physically, but the anxiety is there of like, holy cow, what is, what the hell? is happening. Hell is being unleashed, and how do we deal with it? And how do we get honest truth and answers? And how do we decipher propaganda from truth? And how do we discern mob rule and violence from the way of peace that comes from Jesus? Be careful about that. Uh, and then lastly, um, remember the reality of spiritual warfare. Um, I'm going to finish this passage right now, and I'm just going to let Paul inform our minds and help shape our thinking about all this. Paul says this. In fact, Dan, Dan's going to come on up and close us in a song, but as, how about you guys all stand? Let's do this. I, I, I kind of want to end on a high note that this is heavy. I gave you guys a lot of content, a lot of information. I was kept telling myself we're going to be done by 1045 at the latest, and this is a little bit later than what I normally am used to. So if you do need to feel, feel like you go pick up your kids, um, especially if they are exceptionally needy and that you can help relieve um, the workers back there, that'd be awesome. You're more than welcome to bring them back in here. But I, I want to just create a little bit of uh, extra gap. I want to read this passage over you. I want you to think about it. And then we're just going to sing uh, a song of, of worship of the goodness and the greatness of Jesus. But Paul says this in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 10 through 18. He says, be strong in the Lord in the power of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to be strong and stand against the tactics of the devil, the evil one. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities, powers, rulers, darkness in this world, and against spiritual wickedness in high places. Verse 14, he says, stand, having fastened on the belt of truth, breastplate of righteousness, and he gives a handful of other things. But the point that I want to just emphasize is he's, he's inviting us, even in the midst of incredible chaos, to have footing so that we can stand. That's, that's different than backing away. That's different than running. That's different than fetal position. <laughs> Some of us may want to feel like my go-to is fetal position. Right? I, I hear you. I get you. I've been there. I know that. I've been there. But the invitation of Jesus by way of the power of the gospel is stand. How? in the power of his might. His might. 
You say, I don't have it in me. Of course you don't have it in you. Of course you don't have it in you. But the gospel equips you to say, it's available for you. Trust Jesus. Apply these things that the scripture is inviting us into put on. There's an intentionality that we're called. There will be wars and rumors of wars. This is not new. And we live so far removed from all of this in some sense. But obviously close up by way of social media and things that we watch. And that produces anxiety without sometimes any way of actually even doing anything about it other than just stress, two sides, and become an opinionated, cantankerous human being who posts weird anonymous stuff. And that's who you are. The invitation is to be a different person in this world. A source of hope and life and goodness. And we can do that by the power of the gospel. So let's lift up our voices in this last song.